Uh, so last week we uh, were looking at James chapter 2 and I attempted to do verses 5 through 13, uh, but God had more to say than we had time. And so we're going to pick up kind of where we left off last week. And because I'm such a creative, I titled this message, Love God, Love Others, Be Free, Part 2. Uh, just so we're, uh, you're aware of my creative abilities. So I, I want to remind us, I want to take a step back real quick and just do a quick reminder. We're in the book of James. It's New Testament wisdom literature. Uh, I appreciate Bethany bringing this out again this morning. Our goal here is not to leave here with a, ch- a to-do list, a checklist of things that we should or should not do, behaviors that we should or should not have. Our goal here is to develop true faith. And we do that as we grow in our relationship with God. And I love the, the chorus of that song that we just did. Um, something that the Holy Spirit just, just made jump out to me is that what we bind and what we loose build your church. And so our goal as we're going through this study, as we are asking God to develop our faith, is we are determining what kind of church we are going to build. Are we going to build a church that's pursuing God, that wants to know Him and bring others along with us as we're getting to know the Father? Or are we going to build a church that's about us, that follows our plans and our desires? We're going to talk a little bit more of that as we move on today. Last week we ended, or we talked a lot about uh, what James is discussing in chapter 2 about showing favoritism, specifically between those that are rich and those that are poor. And how when we show favoritism to those that are rich is that we are, we are binding and loosening some things that are not representative of God. We are communicating to those people and to the rest of the people in the church that those that have wealth are more important than those who do not, which is not how God sees us, right? We ended last week with the question of, do we show favoritism to the wealthy people in our lives? And I shared with you guys at the end of that message that something that God put on my heart in that moment is the tendency that I have to prioritize the customers in my life who spend more money at the company than others, than people who spend much less. And if you think about that from the world's standards, it makes sense to do that, right? Like if you're running a business, it would make sense from a business standpoint to really focus in on your biggest customer. Correct? Everybody following me on that? That makes sense, right? But when we're, if my goal, if my primary goal, as we talked about last week, is to be a follower of Christ and to let God's love flow through me, that means I have to let God determine who and how I prioritize things. You see the difference? And so for me, what I'm kind of fleshing out this week, and, and I can tell you somebody who could give great testimony about what this looks like is Aaron Slater right? We, I saw that happen in his life as he changed his goals to prioritize his relationship with God and living in obedience over the world's view of success in his business. So what I'm kind of dealing with this week is, okay, I've got these really big customers over here and I've got these smaller customers over here. God, how do you want me to divide my time up? Not just blindly saying I'm giving everybody the same amount of time, but asking God, how much time do I spend with this guy who's only going to be a one purchase and I'm not going to sell him anything else for 20 years or this guy who's going to come back week after week after week, right? In the world standards, I go back to this guy and I spend most of my time here. But God, how do you want me to spend the time? Because it may be that what's most important in terms of the kingdom is not this customer who's coming back week to week, but this guy who I'm going to have a dedicated amount of time to really focus in on him and communicate God's love through that business relationship. You see what I'm saying? It's bigger than just the business. One of the things that, that we should all begin to see happen in our lives as we're growing in our faces is that, that we think and we operate differently than we did before, right? If we're growing, it means we're changing. It means we see the world in a different way, and not just for the sake of being different, 
but because Christ is changing how we see things, right? His eyes are becoming our eyes, and we see interactions and the people around us in a different way. As we grow in our faith, our goals and desires are going to change accordingly. Those changes in who we are and how we operate, those things are what revealed Jesus to the world. Um, life group, Butterfield Life Group, it's not Butterfield Life Group, it's Westbrook Life, Westbrook life Group now, uh, was picking at me last week. They don't know if Bethany told me this, but they said that I should have titled that sermon last week, Show and Grow, or Grow and Show. Is that what y'all said? Grow and Show? Uh, I, I, I just, I, and I, I appreciate the sentiment there, but I can't do it because that's a type of cow feed, and I just, my brain won't allow that to happen. The changes in who we are reveal Jesus to the world. And this week as I'm thinking about this, last week as I was thinking about this, the Apostle Paul comes to mind. He's a great example of that kind of work in a person's life. Remember, we, we've talked about Saul before. We've all, I'm sure, studied him. Saul, he originally was Saul, who grew up in the Jewish religion, right? Became the Pharisee of all Pharisees is how he described himself. Okay, he followed what he was taught to the point of persecuting anyone who believed otherwise. And then he saw Jesus for who he really was, the promised Messiah. And everything about Paul changed after encountering Jesus and growing in his understanding of who Jesus was, right? Look at with me you know, in Colossians. I want you to see how this changed Paul's life. Not only did he reinterpret his previous beliefs based on this new information, but he put his life on the line for the sake of Christ's name. Look what he says to the church in Colossae. This is uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 24 through 29. Y'all have heard me quote verse um, 27, I think, many, many times, but I wanted this to get a bigger context. Paul says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is the church. Let me just pause right there for just a second. I want to point out what Paul's saying. I want you to hear this. Paul is saying, I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Let me, let me dumb that down for you a little bit because I had to dumb it down for myself. Paul is saying, Christ suffered, and I'm going to complete that work through my life by suffering as well. The reason I want to point that out, and we're going to continue on to read what Paul says from there, but I want us to understand something. I've been kind of beating around the bush for a long time, is, but I, I feel like the book of James is firmly planting our feet in the soil of we need to change our mindset of what it means to be a believer in the world today. That our understanding from an American cultural standpoint of what the church is and who God is calling us to be are two very, very different things. And they're going to require us to live in a different way, but not because Will said you had to. Again, the goal is what? As we know Jesus more, that the same thing happens in our life that's happening in Paul's life that we're willing to forsake everything for the sake of the gospel because we realize the value that's in it. Paul goes on to say in verse 25, I have become its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. We read Paul say something very similar earlier. I just wanna, I want y'all to see what God's doing here, okay? Verse 27, God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. 
We may go on and study this letter in the future, but for today, I want you to understand that Paul's life work was to help people to understand the grace and the mercy that we have received, and then to live according to that grace and that mercy. Nothing was more important than sharing that message, and the cost was irrelevant to Paul. This is God's goal for all of us as well, to know by experience the goodness of Jesus and letting that change our lives. We are to be a refreshing balm in the world that is suffering from disinformation about who God is. James addresses our tendency to be an irritant rather than a balm by perpetuating lies about God by the way that we treat others. You understand that? You ever heard the saying, a burr under the saddle? Have you ever thought about what that means? You know what a burr is? Raise your hand. The little things that get stuck on your pants and they hurt, right? A burr under the saddle, a madeline being a horse and having that underneath the saddle rubbing on you all day. A lot of times the church has become that burr by the way we treat people. Let's look back at James where we left off last week, verses 8 through 11. We'll start there. James says, indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you are a lawbreaker. You see what? I asked this question at the end of last message, but I want to hit it again. Do you see who he's talking to? Who is he addressing? He's addressing those of us that have chosen to be sanctified, who have given ourselves to Christ, right? That's how we begin our relationship with him. And in doing so, by giving ourselves to him, we are asking him to conform us to his likeness. That's who Paul is talking to. It's not those who don't know God. That's not who he's talking to. He's talking to the church, those who have heard and received the message of Christ and have chosen to follow him. He's talking to the church. He's talking to you and I. And if we are showing favoritism for any reason, we are living in sin. He's addressing those of us who are choosing to be sanctified. And he's saying that if our goal is sanctification, which is a good thing, right? If you are purposely showing favoritism to the rich, you might as well break all the law because you're a sinner. And we cannot turn a blind eye to some sin, right? We talked about that at the end of last week. That we don't get to pick and choose which sin we say is okay and which ones we say are not okay. If we break one, even the smallest, we've broken them all. James is referring to a conversation that Jesus had with the rich young ruler. Y'all have read this before, but I want us to look at it again. Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 22. Just then someone came up and asked him, Teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good, he said to him. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he asked him. Jesus answered, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. Do you know what he's referring to there? Big Ten, right? The Ten Commandments. And the young man says, I have kept all these. What do I still lack? If you want to be perfect, Jesus said to him, go sell all your belongings and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard that, he went away grieving, 
because he had many possessions. I want you to hear what Jesus and what James are saying this morning. The problem or sin is not in being wealthy. The problem is in what we do with our wealth and whether we trust in it or in Jesus. Jesus goes on to say that it's incredibly difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Look at, he goes on to say in Matthew 19, verse 23-24, Jesus said to the disciples, Truly I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying that because wealth creates a false sense of security. And, when we, and then we put our trust in that wealth rather than in Jesus. We become so accustomed to that security blanket that it's nearly impossible to let it go. So circling back to what James is teaching, if we show favoritism to the rich, we are creating a false image of God and lead people to desire and trust in wealth rather than Jesus. I want you to think about that practically with me for a moment. If we are to prioritize someone in the church because of their income, because of their wealthy status, what are we communicating to the church? What's important? To be like that person, right? But that's not the gospel. That's not what Jesus taught. Look at what uh, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9 through 10. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and perceived themselves, or pierced themselves with many griefs. Money is a pretty sticky point in our culture, right? We talked about last week how the world revolves around it. We get consumed by the desire to be comfortable according to our culture. It becomes the main driver in the decisions that we make. If you look back at your own life, if I look back at my own life and I think about some of the jobs that I've had in the past, a lot of that was centered around how much money can I make, right? It doesn't matter if it's our own wealth or the wealth of others. If we put special attention to it, we are falsely representing God. And James is pushing back against that ideology because Jesus pushed back against it. So what do we do with all this? James is talking about not showing favoritism or partiality. James is warning us against showing favoritism to the rich because in doing so, we paint a false picture of who God is. So what does James want us to do? How do you and I push back against culture that places so much emphasis on wealth? This is where it's just going to get good. Look at chapter 2, verses 12 through 13 in James. It says, speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For, the judgment, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We're going to break this down because that sounds complex. Okay? The law of freedom is the two great commandments. Love God love your neighbor as yourself, right? That should be our daily driver, not a pursuit of wealth or security through wealth. Let me ask you a question. Let's think back for a moment. What is God's goal in redemption for us? What have we talked about? What's he trying to redeem us back to? The original relationship we were created to have, right? Back in the beginning when Adam and Eve chose to sin. Prior to that, that's what he's trying to get us back to. He wants to restore the relationship that we were created to have with him. One that's open. One where we can walk and talk with him. I was thinking about the imagery that I get when I read Genesis chapter 1. 
where Adam and Eve are walking through the garden with God. Can you imagine that? For just for a moment, just imagine. Getting to wake up and your whole day is surrounded by one thing. I'm going to just walk with God today in the beautifulest of gardens that has ever been made. There's no work. There's no having to chase toddlers. I mean, maybe there's some chasing toddlers, but it's in a garden and God's there, so it's got to be great, right? But our whole life would just be revolved around this one relationship. A relationship which we never have to feel guilt or shame or anything even remotely negative. Have you ever thought about what that might feel like? Does that sound like the kind of relationship that would be offensive or divisive in any way? A relationship where no guilt, no shame, and nothing negative was, was around. Does that sound offensive or divisive? No, it doesn't, right? Why is it then that people are turned off by the church or by mentioning God? If that's what we're about, if, if, if God's goal is to redeem us, to restore this relationship where there's no decisiveness, why is it that people are, are, just don't want anything to do with the church at all? It's because of what James is addressing. Because the church has preached a gospel that's not the gospel. They have said this is more important than everything else. And people distance themselves from both God and the church because of what they've learned through their experiences with the church. I want us to understand today that that's not God's fault. The fault lies at the feet of those who claim to know God but don't. What we know to be true, you and I, as a real person, what we know to be true is that if we love God and love others, we are going to experience freedom. I love Colleen, your testimony this morning felt burdened down. God told you to speak up and you did, and that weight was lifted, right? You experienced freedom. That's what God created us to live in. Not a world where we feel... Not a relationship where we feel the weight of the world on our shoulders. That's not God. That's sin. That's brokenness. And what God desires for our lives is for that weight to be lifted as we're walking with Him. So here's what I want us to see. This is where the title of the sermon comes from. If we can love God and we can love others, we can be free. We can be free from the weight of this world. We've experienced that in our own lives. We heard testimony about it today. There's a clear example of this found in Acts, Acts chapter 2, verse 43 through 47. We've heard this, but I don't know if we've internalized and, and, and understood that this could be for us today. This is when the church has, has just started, the Holy Spirit's come down, thousands of people have given their lives to Christ, and it says in verse 43, everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. This is the freedom and the joy that Jesus and James are talking about. Where was the focus of these believers? Holy Spirit's just come. They've heard the gospel. They're focusing on two things, God and one another. 
They're loving God and they're loving their neighbors themselves. And in the midst of that, the church explodes. Not because they had good marketing, not because their pastors were really great, great orators. The church was exploding because people were experiencing the truth about who God was for the first time in their lives. They grew up in religion that said, you do this and you don't do this, and then God, hopefully, if you make enough sacrifices, if you work hard enough, God might accept you. And then Jesus comes and says, no, 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 y'all got it all wrong. I'm going to be the sacrifice. I'm going to take care of the law for you. How did the church get to that point? How were their lives so radically changed? Luke goes on to say in chapter two, Acts chapter 2, verse 41 through 42, he says, So those who accepted this message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they made their relationship with God and with one another the main priorities in their life. They were intentional about loving God and loving others, and they experienced freedom in return. We don't need to worry about if we're going to have enough. I don't know about you, but that's a constant worry in my life. Do I have enough money? Do I have enough money? Do I have enough money for this, for this, for this, for this? I, the list is long, and I'm not alone in that. You guys look at your own lives the same way. As we saw at the beginning of this message, Jesus said that all that he has is ours, right? We sang about that today. We can experience freedom as we learn to trust God just like the early church did. James says that we are to speak and to act as those who are judged by the law of freedom. In other words, live in the freedom that you have been given. What does that look like? To live in the freedom we've been given. The world would say having enough money and power to do what you want is freedom, right? In, in terms of the world, you got enough money, you got enough power, you can do whatever you want, right? Everybody agree with that? Look at how Jesus describes freedom in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Who among you, if, he, if his son asked for, for bread, would give him a stone? Or if he asked for a fish, would give him a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts, good things, to those who ask him? Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them, for this is the law and the prophets. Jesus is redefining what it means to be wealthy and to be free. I was talking about ago when God created us, he created us in a garden who lit that literally had everything that we needed to live an incredible life. And the same is still true today. Our salvation is an adoption into the family of God to be a co-heir with Christ. That's why Jesus is saying, look, if you're following me, ask for whatever you need and I will provide it. Because our daddy is rich, y'all. He's got all we need. But yet, we're, we're like the prodigal son who's like, I, no, I'm going to go do this on my own. I'm going to make my own money, and I'm going to worry about my own stuff. 
And Jesus is standing there going, but, but I got it all. I don't, I don't need you to do that. Come, come be with me. By God's standards, all that we need to be will be freely given to us as we abide in Christ. Knowing all God has done for us causes us to love him more. We talk about that all the time, right? There's an area in all of our lives where we need to learn to trust God. And that's from a place of providing for us. All that God has done for us causes us to love him more. What do we do from there? What's next? Jesus said, love our neighbors as ourselves. And the most loving thing we can do for our neighbors is to share that knowledge and wealth that we have received as co-heirs, correct? We ask ourselves, what does James mean in the first part of verse 13? He says, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Anybody just right off the hand know exactly what that says? I had to study it out a little bit. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. We've heard something like this before. Look at Proverbs 21, 13, because I want you to see James is not making this stuff up. Proverbs 21, 13 says, the one who shuts his ear to the cry of the poor will himself, uh, will himself also call out and not be answered. Or what about the parable of the unforgiving servant? Peter asked John, asked Jesus many times, how many times he should forgive somebody? And that's a, that's a legit question, right? Like you've been in a place in your life before where somebody keeps con- continually doing the same thing to you and you're like, how, many, how long do I have to deal with this? That's what Peter's asking Jesus. And Jesus responded with a parable of a king who forgave the debts of three men, but one does not extend that same mercy to his debtor. Look at the king's response. This is out of Matthew chapter 18, verse 32 through 35. It says, then after he summoned him, his master said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything he was owed. So also my heavenly father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. Pause for a minute. We've been talking about mercy all morning. We've been talking about freedom. And all of a sudden James jumps into this passage about that seems like at first reading, if I don't act and do these things in this certain way, it's going to be bad with God. Right? Anybody else feeling that way right now? That's where my mind went this morning. Listen to what one of these commentators said, and then we'll break this down a little bit. He said, God's gracious acceptance of us does not end our obligation to obey him. It sets us on a new footing. No longer is God's law threatening, confining burden. For the will of God now confronts us as a law of liberty, an obligation we discharge in the joyful knowledge that God has both liberated us from penalty of sin and given us in his spirit the power to obey his will. To use James's own description, this law is an implanted word written on our heart that has the power to save us. Here's what James is doing. James is setting the stage for the next section that he's about to go into. And we're going to talk about this next week, the connection between faith and works. We've got to be careful because when we read this quickly, this passage in particular, and then that parable on top of it, we're going to think that the mercy of God that extends to us is conditional because that's what it sounds like when we first look at it. But nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus confirms that in the first part of that parable. 
Look at when Peter's asking the question, look at what he says. He says, then Peter approached him and said, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? I tell you not, not as many as seven, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. God's mercy is never going to end, and we should have no doubt about that. Seven times 70 is not a magic number, and like once you get to that, was it 490? It's not like when you get to 490, you're like, okay, I'm done forgiving. Jesus said that's enough. Jesus is saying, by saying 70 times 7, as many times as it takes. Because who's really going to count to 490 the number of times they've forgiven somebody? I, I, I don't have the mental capacity for that. Okay, couldn't keep up with it. James is saying, Jesus is saying, you forgive as much as is needed. That's how God looks at us. Listen to this Charles Spurgeon quote. This came up in my study. It says, God's mercy is so great that you may sooner drain the sea of its water or deprive the sun of its light, or make space too narrow, then diminish the great mercy of God. Church, here's, here's what I want us to see, because when we're talking through this, when we're talking about showing favoritism, when we're looking at the words of James, it would be very easy to walk out of here feeling condemned. But what James wants you to understand, what Jesus wants you to understand, what Charles Spurgeon wants you to understand, is that we cannot out God's mercy. You hear me? You can't mess up so bad that God will not continue to forgive you. That's what Jesus is communicating to Peter. James's argument, and again, we're going to see this more next week, is that if we don't show mercy, here's what James is saying. If we're not showing mercy, it's because we don't understand mercy. Let me give you an example. Raise your hand if you've ever got a speeding ticket. Raise it up, hold it up high for me. Okay. Did you know it was against the law of speed? You can put your hand down. Did you know it was against the law of speed? You did, okay, but you didn't heed the warning, right? Okay, raise your hand and hold up again if you sped on the way to church this morning. Y'all better put some hands up. Okay, Here, here's the deal. Yeah, you, some of you are like, I don't, I don't know. If you don't know, you did, okay, <laughs> guaranteed. So, so, so hold on, wait a minute, Will. I knew it was against the law to speed, and I sped, and I got a driving award because of it, okay, and that hurt because they're expensive. But, but I sped again. Do you not understand? Are we thick? I sped on the way to church this morning because I was running a little late. Am I dumb? No, I'm not. It is entirely possible for us to know something and just not worry about it, to not listen to it. We need to know, we need to understand that God has lavished his grace and his mercy over us. We know that here, just like we know that speeding is wrong. But we choose to ignore it sometimes. James is telling us that if we know that God has lavished his mercy on us, we need to act like it. It was true of the group that James was writing to, and it's true of the church today. We have heard God's mercy, but we have allowed that knowledge, but have we allowed that knowledge? to change how we live. What James is addressing is not a knowledge issue, it's a heart issue. If you find yourself denying mercy to other people, if you are judging them against some other metric than you are, than you're using on yourself, then you're lying to them and you're lying to yourself. If we're judging other people by some metric that we're not judging ourselves by, 
We're lying to them and we're lying to us. James is saying that you don't understand God's mercy. If you're struggling with extending God's mercy, take some time this week to meditate upon it. Let God work in you to move that knowledge from your head to your heart because it's going to change the way you see the world. If we're looking at other people and we're making judgments based on anything, if we're judging them at all, the reality is, is that's still in our heart and we see ourselves the way we are projecting on them. You hear me? If you're judging other people, it means you're still judging yourself too. Because if you were judging them, that's still in here. And we need to let God deal with that. So I knew last week I was going to preach over this part of the the passage. And I had done some prep for that, obviously, I was going to preach. But I think part of the reason that God delayed me last week is because I still needed some work in my own heart before I preached through this message. And so I think it was Wednesday. I had a a meeting. I got one last story, and then I'm going to wrap this up. I had a meeting Wednesday in West Monroe. Had to get up early. Had to be there. I'm on the way there, and I'm listening to a book. It's not. It's it's just for fun. I wasn't listening it trying to learn something about this. And the, one of the characters in the book made a comment about how mercy is expensive for both parties, both the giver and the receiver. And I still didn't like. I didn't flesh out what that fully means, but it. But that word mercy, the Holy Spirit triggered my mind, and it made me think about mercy. So I've got some of this stuff rolling around in my head, and I probably still had another half hour, 45 minutes before I got to my meeting. I turned my book off, and I'm just thinking about mercy and thinking about all the things that I know about mercy and thinking about how God has shown mercy in my life. Like I'm just kind of obsessed in that time thinking about the concept of mercy. And I get to my meeting, and it went great. It was a wonderful meeting, and, and I leave from it, and I'm, I'm in West Monroe, and i got to go to Grambling. It's about 20 miles, and again, I'm just I'm, I still, God's got mercy on my mind, and, and it's just a sweet time of just thinking about how merciful God is to me, and I get to Grambling. We're building a truck stop there, and we broke ground about, I don't know, three, four weeks ago, and I, we're getting ready to do part of the fuel system, which is what I kind of oversee. And we got another manager that oversees the building and all that. And so I get there and some things are different than what I expected them to be. So I just called my cohort at the office, a guy who's in the same level in the company as me, and asked him a question. And he exploded on me and basically said, I'm going to shorten up a really long thing. He basically said, you worry about your own jobs and leave mine alone. I said, I thought we were on the same team here. He's like, I, everybody keeps calling me and blah, 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 and he just, and he hangs up. And so here's where I am in that moment. I'm taken aback and I'm angry. I'm like legit angry and I, I feel like I'm justified in my anger, right? Like I don't work for him and he doesn't work for me, but we're supposed to work together and if his job is lagging behind, it affects mine. And I wasn't calling to say You're, you've done anything wrong. I just called and asked a question. And so now I've got an hour and a half ride home and I am consumed by this. Remember, mercy's been on my mind all morning. And so while I felt like I could be justified in my anger, what I wanted to do was go get in that guy's face and say, how dare you? But God was working in my heart that morning. 
And so I'm praying about it, and I'm talking to God, and I'm saying, what did I do to cause this? And I'm thinking back through the conversation, and I can't, I can't identify anything in, the, in that whole part of that first week that could have caused that kind of response. And I've worked with this guy a long time. Like, we've never had this kind of interaction. As I'm thinking through it, I think, well, it's got to be something bigger than what's going on here. Typically, when somebody explodes at you like that out of nowhere, it's a bigger issue. And so I'm asking God, because mercy's been on my mind all morning. I said, God, this has got to be something bigger than just, if it's me, that's fine. I'll address it. I'll apologize. We'll move forward. But if it's something other than that, something that I can't control, teach me to show mercy. Make that happen in my heart today. And so I get back to the office and I walk through the door. When you walk through the door, my dad's office is on the left and that guy's sitting in my dad's office. And so I just stuck my head in and I, I tapped him on the shoulder. I said, hey, when you get done, would you mind coming to the office and talk to me? Mine's right around the corner. He said, yeah. So he comes in and he, he, he just kind of stands in front of my desk and he just kind of looks at me like, what? And I said, man, are you okay? Yeah, yeah, I mean, okay, look, here's the deal. And he kind of unloaded what he's been processing. And he apologized. Then the next day, we normally work together a little bit. The next day, he was in and out of my office all day needing things from me for his projects. And here's what God showed me through that experience was. I could have, by the world standard, been justified in my anger and retaliated in kind and been totally justified in the workplace. Right? I don't work for him. There's no reason for him to talk to me that way. And if I'd have done that, I'd have been justified. But Thursday would have been real awkward. Right? But God did something in me that day. And I'm so thankful. Look, I'm not the hero of this story God is, just so we're all clear about how I see myself. Okay? God did something. And Thursday, we worked more smoothly than we've ever worked before. And if you'd have asked me on Tuesday if we worked together well, I'd have said, yeah, man, we're great. And now it's even better because God did something. God's love and his love for others, the love that he has placed in us, gives us the freedom that he is talking about. I experienced freedom Friday because I listened to the Holy Spirit, excuse me, on Thursday because I listened to the Holy Spirit on Wednesday. God wants to do that in all of our lives. That that kind of scenario is not unique to me. What James wants us to understand, what he wants the church to understand, is that we live in a broken world who is going to respond to us in ways that is not kind. That there are parts of our lives that we project onto the world that are not kind. Jesus said we are to do two things, to love God and to love one another. And if we can do those things, we are going to experience the freedom that God created us to experience when he made the garden. We're going to experience the kind of freedom that we're going to experience when we get to the other side of this life and we go to heaven. And we can experience that here now if we will just learn to listen to the Holy Spirit, to love God and to love others. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful for your work in my life and the the lives of our church. God, I'm so thankful for the testimony of the powerful ways that you're working in our body. Lord, as you continue to, to 
change us and mold all of us into your likeness. God, I ask that you would give us all opportunities this week to experience your mercy, whether we receive it or we give it, or perhaps even both. God, give us some time this week to meditate on where our hearts are. How do we see people? Are we judging them? Or are we seeing them the way that God sees them? Prep our hearts to understand where we are right now. Reveal it to us and give us the courage, the power, the desire to walk in obedience to how you want to change us. Move this from our head into our hearts. God, we ask all these things in your name. Amen.